Luke 5, 17 through 6, 11. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with them or with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to them, or he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new And the peace from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath... While he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, or to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Jesus has started his ministry. If you have been here the last couple of weeks, you know that he has declared that his purpose is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, gospel, the word gospel there in the most kind of basic sense means good news. It's the good news about the coming kingdom. A king would, would uh, conquer, a king would um, uh, win some victory, and they would, they would come in with, with the gospel of that victory. 
So this is the gospel of the kingdom of God, but it's a gospel far beyond any other good news that's ever come before it, because God's kingdom, His, His, His foretold kingdom of, from the Old Testament, from hundreds of years before, in Christ is happening, is happening. And this is what Jesus is doing. We come to a, a, a section of Luke here where we have five separate stories. Each of them could be a sermon in and of themselves, right? I'm sure you're thinking, how in the world is Cody going to pull all of these things together? That's what I was thinking a couple of weeks ago when I started this message, right? Sort of preparing. Um, but I think, I think that these five stories actually go together. There are two reasons. Maybe this is a little help as you're reading through the Bible to kind of see some of the, the, the ways in which the, the writers are putting things together. If you notice right before our passage in verse 16, Jesus is withdrawn to a desolate place to pray. If you look at the end of our passage, the next verse afterwards, in chapter 6, verse 12, you see that Jesus again is pulling off by himself onto a mountain to pray all night. And so what you have in between uh, all kind of goes together, and it's five controversies that Jesus has. I think these five controversies are ways in which this gospel of the kingdom of God is coming into conflict with the culture of the day. I want you to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of this kingdom, is a wonderful and glorious and life-giving gospel. But it is not a gospel that shares space with other supposed gospels. Rather, when other good newses, <laughs> if I can say that, if I just, I just think I just made up a word, come in come come to into the same space with it, there's controversy. There's conflict there. Because it doesn't share space. Something has to give. And I want you to understand as we look at this, that if we are proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and to the degree that we are living out that kingdom, when it comes into opposition with the kingdoms of the world, with other ways of thinking, with other gospels, there's, there's going to tend to be controversy. And so, inasmuch as the culture around us is opposed to the gospel of God's kingdom, and as much as we are actually proclaiming that gospel and living that gospel, I want you to understand, Christian, I want you to understand, church, that, that controversy is, is going to happen around you. It's going to happen. We have to be prepared for that. But what I hope that you see is that the reason there is controversy is because these other supposed gospels don't actually bring the life they promise. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ brings that life. And so Jesus, while I'm sure this is not easy for him, I'm sure this is a difficult, while he has to pull off to a desolate place to get by himself to pray beforehand, and he has to do it again afterwards because it's hard, at the same time, it's right because this is the way in which life, the life of the gospel comes into the world. Okay? So, I've heard it described, and I'm sure that I've said this at some point in some place in time as well, that there's this sort of spectrum. On one side, you have what might, someone might call legalism. There's, you have a high standard of, for righteousness that we've got to achieve. I've got to live up to this bar. On the other side of the spectrum is what you might call lawlessness or license, right? No one, can, no one can reach that bar over here, the, the legalist bar. And so what we're going to do over here on the lawless side is we're just going to lower the bar down so that we can just kind of step over it, right? If we just lower the bar, then, then we're all right. And conveniently, on this side, what happens is... Uh, we always lower the bar just slightly under us and slightly over the next guy, right? 
Or we always lower the bar in the places where we tend to just naturally be better at those things, but then kind of keep the bar cranked up on someone else. You know, that's what happens. That's how we, how we do it. And what I've heard people say then is that the gospel is kind of somewhere in the middle. It's not legalism over here. It's not lawlessness over here. You've got to find kind of this happy medium. But what I want to present to you is this. That's not true, Okay. That's not where the gospel is. The gospel is not some happy medium between legalism and lawlessness. The gospel is on a completely different spectrum. It's a whole different thing. And while what I what I would propose to you, my hypothesis, if you will, what, what I'm trying to argue for here is that while legalism and lawlessness on the surface look very, very different, visibly they look very, very different, at the very fundamental level, they're not different. They're actually the same thing. The legalist seeks to justify himself by climbing a self-righteous ladder The lawless person also seeks to justify himself by lowering the bar so low he doesn't need much of a ladder. But either way, it's self-righteousness. Either way, I am trying to deem myself righteous on my own accord, either by living up to a standard or by lowering the standard. But the gospel is different. The gospel says... You can't. You can't do it. There is a standard, and it really is this high, and you can't ever climb up to it. You need someone else to have done it, and then to gift it to you on on your behalf. And that's that's, that's the gospel of the kingdom of God, that Christ has done that. So we don't Oftentimes I've heard people talk about grace in this way. They, they kind of talk about grace as if, you know, as if what grace is, is pretending that there's not a standard. Someone does something, and oh, just be gracious with them. And what they really mean is pretend that what they did that was wrong isn't wrong. That's not grace. Friends, that's not grace. Grace is saying you you did do something wrong, and yet I'm still going to gift you this thing anyways, right? If you take away the wrong, if you take away the standard, then you've taken away the reason for needing grace in the first place. There's no grace because grace is not necessary, okay? And so our passage today gives us a series of illustrative stories, but the meat of the thing is really in the middle. I want to I share with you kind of the, the middle piece. And then what I want to do is I want to walk through each of these five stories and show you how Jesus is applying the gospel of the kingdom to these five situations. How he's been going in the last two weeks, we've seen him proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And now Luke gives us a series of stories in which Jesus applies that gospel to five different situations and it creates controversy. It creates controversy because he is saying, here is the son of man's righteousness. This is son of man made righteousness. And it comes into conflict with man-made righteousness. Okay? So in verses 36 and 39, right in the middle, Jesus gives this short parable. It's really a series of of little parables that all kind of go together. And I want to share this with you to kind of frame up the rest of what we're going to talk about. Okay, so Jesus says... Verse 36, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old. Why? If you do that, two things happen. The first thing that happens is you've just ruined the new garment. You've taken a new garment that's perfectly good, you've ripped off a square of it and put it onto an old garment that's got a hole in it. That doesn't make any sense because now you've ruined the new garment, and then what happens when you put it on the old garment? Well, it doesn't match up. 
You sew it on, the new garment part shrinks over time, it tears a hole anyways, it doesn't match up. So now you've not even adequately repaired the old garment, and you've just ruined the new garment. They're both ruined. And then he gives this other illustration of new wine and old wineskins. You know, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar, I'm not like super familiar with how wine, you know, ferments and expands and whatever, but I did have a guy I worked with one time who brewed his own root beer. And uh, he'd brew his own root beer, and there's a chemical process that happens when you, you put it in the bottles, and then it does its thing, has to sit there in kind of the cool, and it, he put it in his basement or whatever. And he said every once in a while, he'd be sitting upstairs, and it would sound like someone shot a gun in his basement. But what was happening is he actually accidentally filled the root beer bottle too full, and the, it shattered the glass as it expanded. The pressure became so much that, that the bottle, a glass bottle, just boom, exploded, Right? And so you put this new wine into these old wineskins, these old wineskins that have stretched as far as they can stretch, right? You put the new wine in there and that that process happens. And at some point, the old wineskins break. And then what happens to all the new wine? Spills all over the floor. It's ruined as well. And so now you've ruined the old wineskin and you've wasted the new wine. Here's the point. You can't, you can't attempt to justify, to be justified by your observance of the law and by faith in Christ's work. See, Jesus, is what he's talking about is he's saying, look, there was an old way. There was the old, an old covenant. There was the law. And the law in and of itself is not necessarily bad or evil. It's just insuffi- it was just insufficient because we are insufficient, because we couldn't live up to it. It was righteous and holy, says in Romans, but we never could live up to it, and so we could never achieve righteousness based on it. We need someone else to have fulfilled it perfectly and apply that to us. That's Jesus. That's the gospel. That's what Christ is doing. But if we try to hold one and the other at the same time, both are wasted because we're not using the old the way it's meant to be used under the gospel. And by trying to make ourselves righteous through the law, we are disregarding what Christ has done in the gospel, right? And the new far exceeds the old. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the, the old covenant was glorious. It was so glorious that when Moses met with God, right, his face shone the, with, with glory, right? And then Paul says, the new covenant in Christ is so much more glorious that it makes the old covenant not look glorious at all. And so like when Jesus turns the water into wine, the master of the feast is surprised that the best wine was saved for last. That's what Christ is for us. I thought the other stuff was pretty good, but this, this is where, where did you get this? This is, this is the best. So you can't take hold of the new if your hands are grasping the old, the old, that man-made righteousness squeezed from the fruit of the law. It leads to death because we can't do it. We fail. But the new, the Son of Man-made righteousness, if you will, it's drawn from the very veins of Christ on the cross, and it leads to life every single time. But here's the rub. It comes in verse 39. No one, after drinking the old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. You see, Jesus' point here isn't to say that the old is actually better. It's an ironic statement. What he's saying is people will be unwilling to take the new because they're actually content with continuing with the old. They even like it better. They think they like it better. They like thinking that their standard of righteousness, their way of achieving is sufficient. We acquire a taste for man-made righteousness. All of us have acquired a taste for man-made righteousness. It's been passed down to us from our father Adam. You know what that tastes like? You know what the wine of that fruit tastes like? It tastes like the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree that Eve reached out and plucked the fruit from and said, 
I think I'll decide what's right and wrong. I'll decide what righteousness is rather than receiving what God has told me. For Jesus, he's in his original audience, he's specifically speaking to the old Jewish system, but we have our own ways, don't we? And so whenever we live by the gospel, it tends to create controversy for amongst those who love the old, both from those who love the old legalism and those who love the old lawlessness. Here's what I want to, to do. I want to look at these five scenes. Look, you're going, look, didn't you just preach a sermon? Well, okay, hang with me today. It's a lot to cover. Let's look at these five scenes briefly. I want to identify what the controversy is. And then seeing what that key difference is between the old and the new, I hope to show us why the old fails, why the old leads to death, and how Christ ushers in something so much better for us. Okay? Scene one, the paralytic and forgiveness. Okay, here's what happens. Jesus is teaching. There's a ton of people around, including Pharisees. Some men, they want to bring their paralyzed uh, friend to Jesus to be healed, but the crowds are too great. It seems as though Jesus must be inside. Maybe he's in a house. Maybe he's under some sort of portico. I'm not entirely sure. It doesn't say, but there's a roof over him. And so these friends haul their paralyzed friend up on the roof, right? Which I'm thinking that's an achievement in and of itself, right? And, and then they dig through the, the roof, tear the roof up, which has got to be its own other achievement, and they actually drop this man. They lower him. I don't know if they've just got the ropes with them. Like, oh, I'm so glad I brought my rope with me today. You know, I don't know. Uh, but they drop their friend down through the roof right in front of Jesus, right? That's bold. I mean, that's a bold move there, you know? We'll see how that works out for you. And this effort that they put into it, Jesus sees it as faith in him. He looks at what they're doing and he goes, and he identifies their hearts. He identifies, this, is just, this isn't just some, some thing they did, they're not just being rude and damaging someone's property. No, they have faith that if they would do this, that this is actually good and right and Jesus will heal their friend. Faith produces fruit. So they believe that Jesus will, will do this and Jesus you know, he, uh, he doesn't do what we immediately would expect him to do, right? I mean, if you're reading this story, you expect Jesus to go like, whoa, why'd you tear the roof up? Or what are, what are you doing? I'm, I'm trying to teach this, this message and you're interrupting me. Or, or maybe at best we think he'd just say, stand up and walk, but he doesn't do any of that. He actually says to the man, man, your sins are forgiven. I wonder what the friends are thinking on the roof. You're supposed to heal him, Jesus. Jesus forgives his sins based on his faith in Jesus himself. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, how can he forgive? How can you do that? The controversy here is around forgiveness. You know, in the law, in Leviticus 4, in Leviticus 16, there are instructions for sacrifices for sins, and there's instructions about the Day of Atonement and how sins were supposed to be forgiven and how you're supposed to go about that process. And this stuff, we went through a priest, it went through the sacrificial system. You didn't just, you know, stand in someone's house and pronounce someone forgiven. That's not how it worked, Jesus. You know that. With man-made righteousness, you have two options. Either you've got to fulfill all the necessary steps to be forgiven. You need to kind of prove yourself in order to kind of have some sort of forgiveness given to you by other people. Pay the penance, you know, uh, tweet, tweet the apology, if you will. Uh, make the right charitable donations to the right organizations, you know, so that the, the general public will forgive you, whatever it is, you know. All the while, the world is holding a gun to your head saying, if you don't do it exactly right, we're going to cancel you. And if you ever make a mistake, you know, you're out again. We do that even in our own personal relationships sometimes, right? The kind of forgiveness that we offer one another is oftentimes a lot like that. Or 
The other way that this is done in the world is to just say you don't need to be forgiven. That's lawlessness. Yeah, I, whatever, I didn't do anything wrong. Even if it was wrong. I've decided what's good and evil and, you know, whatever. If, it's, if, if that thought isn't sinful, if that action isn't sinful, if I'm not sinful, then I don't need forgiveness. I don't need Christ. But this man does need Christ. He lacks the ability on his own to rightly walk through life, and his legs don't work either. And so Jesus, reading their hearts, remember Simeon said when Jesus was just a baby that Jesus would do just that. He would know men's hearts, and it would lead to the falling and the what of many, the rising of many, which is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven, arise and walk, but but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the man, he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And that's exactly what the man does. I'm just imagining the man who, this lame guy, just fell through the roof, picks up his mat, starts to walk, and the, and the seas part. Because everyone is just so astonished. And he just walks away. In Son of Man-made righteousness, forgiveness comes through faith in Christ alone. We all fall short of the righteous standard of God. Only Christ lived that perfectly. Only Christ died for our shortcomings. Only Christ has traded his righteous record for our, righteous, or for our unrighteous record. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, for our sake he made, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You really can't do anything to earn or deserve forgiveness. That's not how forgiveness works. I don't know what crowd you think is keeping you from Jesus. And I don't know what, what ceiling, what issues have become a ceiling to you, a roof to you. But you need to climb up and tear that thing up and drop your lame heart down in the midst before Jesus and trust that he really forgives and heals. But maybe you don't feel like you're invited to do such a thing. Well, scene two, Levi, an invitation. Here's what's happening. Jesus is heading out from there. He's just done that. And he, he's just healed this paralyzed guy. And, and I don't know where it says Levi's over here in his tax collector booth. And Jesus looks over and sees him. Maybe Levi's been listening to what's happening from a distance. Maybe he saw the lame man come on his bed and get dropped down. And maybe he saw the lame man walk out on his feet. And he thought, whoa, what, did that, what is going on? And Jesus is walking by and he turns to Levi and he tells him, follow me. He just goes, hey, hey, Levi, follow me. Levi leaves everything and follows him. He says he leaves everything. This phrase Luke is going to use multiple times. It's the way in which he, he, he describes when people actually follow Jesus. They, they leave everything. And it's not leaving everything necessarily like giving away all that he has because we're just about to see Jesus at Levi's house feasting, right? So Levi's got some provisions, if you will. But the point here is that following Jesus is... Uh, so following Jesus becomes the sole priority that aligns every sub-priority in our life. That's what it means to follow Christ. That now following Christ becomes the one and only priority in our life, and it is by that priority that every other priority gets filtered and, and placed where it's supposed to go. Anything else that gets in the way of following Christ, it's got, it's got to go. Get it out of here. Levi, he has Jesus over for a feast, and, and you know, if you're going to have a feast, if you're going to have a, a big dinner, you invite the people you know. And it just so turns out that a tax collector, the people he knows are tax collectors and sinners, right? The, the people that the Pharisees say, oh, there's a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. We don't like those guys. So Levi invites the people he knows over to have dinner with Jesus, and sure enough, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, they see it and they grumble about Jesus feasting with these tax collectors and, and, and sinners. And Jesus answers this way. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the controversy was who can Jesus call? 
who does Jesus get to call? Who does Jesus get to say, hey, follow me to? As one commentator put it, who can be a potential object of God's mercy? Who, Christian? Who in your life, around your life, who can be a potential object of God's mercy? Do you get to decide that? Or does Christ get to decide that? The Pharisees, with their legalistic man-made righteousness, right, they want to claim that you've got to get yourself fixed up enough. Then an invitation of mercy can be extended. But Jesus says it's the sick that need a physician. If you can heal yourself, what need is there for Jesus? If you think you can heal yourself, if you think you're not sick, what do you need Christ for? But there's a, this lawlessness, right? So you got on one hand, you got to heal, you got to fix yourself up enough to, to come to Jesus. On the other hand, is this lawlessness of saying, what sinners? What sick? I wonder, I wonder what, the, I wonder what the, uh, the tax collectors and sinners that were sitting around Jesus thought. The Pharisees make this accusation and Jesus says, <laughs> Jesus says, clearly talking about them, the well have no need of physician, but the sick. I've come to call the, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They have to know that Jesus is talking about them. And I wonder if any of them were tempted to go like, oh, oh, hold on, Jesus. Hold on a second. You're talking about me? I'm sick? You call me a sinner? No, I, I bet they, they probably were pretty well aware standing in the presence of Christ that they were, in fact, sinners. But Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, that is, those who think themselves righteous on their own, and who think that they do not even need to be an object of mercy because of how great they are. No, Jesus has come to call sinners to repentance. This false righteousness, I want you to understand, this false righteousness applies as much to pharisaical uh, uh, supposed Christians, right? Pharisaical churchgoers who say the name of Jesus but don't actually turn to him, who demand other people to get their acts together before they can come to church, let's say. It applies as much to them as it applies to pharisaical adherence to the religion of the culture of death in our world today. Do you understand that that's as pharisaical as anything? The same kind of zeal, pharisaical zeal exists there. Satan doesn't care what you believe so long as you don't think you have to turn to Jesus. The invitation that Christ extends is to those who would repent. The sick recognize they are sick and come for help. But the temptation of man-made righteousness is strong, and even if, we, even if we know we need help, we're tempted to think, all right, all right, Dr. Jesus, I know I need some help, I know I need some <coughs> surgery, but just let me, let me just get a few stitches in. Let me just stitch up a few things, let me clean up some of this mess Make it a little bit more presentable for you. But Jesus is saying, you think that I'm going to be disturbed by your wounds? You think I'm disturbed by, by your wounds? I remember what it looked like when I hung on the cross. I remember what chunks of my own flesh on the ground looked like as they whipped me. I remember what wiping the blood out of my own eyes was like. You think you need to clean yourself up before the physician comes? As one pastor said it, he said this, he said, God takes you from where you are, not where you should have been. He is going to take you. I want you to understand, you come to Jesus, he's going to take you somewhere else. But he takes you from where you are in this moment, not where you ought to have been if you had done everything right. Because the reality is that's why you need Jesus, because you haven't. The hospital is open, friends. The physician is in. The responsibility that God has given us is to extend that call 
that external call to present the gospel, to help people to see their need for a Savior, and the glory of Christ that meets that need abundantly, the, the, the internal call, the, the Holy Spirit communicating to uh, uh, someone's heart, follow me, that is God's job. But we extend that invitation. Scene three, a feast and a celebration. What happens when the sick become well? What happens when the sick become well? It produces joy and celebration. You ever been really sick before? Like you can't eat anything, throwing up, just, just terrible sick. And you finally get well, and what do you do? You go, man, I want, I'm going to hit that pizza buffet up. That's what I'm doing because I can finally eat something. Get the steaks out of the freezer. We're grilling, right? Jesus answered the first question. So they come up with another one. They say, well, John, John the Baptist's disciples, they fast often. The Pharisees, they do that as well. But Jesus, your disciples don't fast. In fact, they're eating and drinking. They're feasting. What's up with that? Why are you feasting, not fasting? So Jesus, yeah, well, before, he, before I tell you what, how Jesus responds, first I want to say you need to understand that the law, the law, the Old Testament law, only called for fasting on the Day of Atonement. That was the only required day for fasting. But the Pharisees, they had added to that all of these weekly fasts and things, which, uh, which what we'll see is not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but what was bad is now that those things are being placed on top of other people or it's being used as a means to say, look, we are more righteous than you because we. And so Jesus responds with this illustration. He says, when wedding guests are with the groom, that's the appropriate time for celebration and rejoicing. You understand what he's saying, that when, when the wedding guests are, with, are at the wedding, right, and the, the groom is there and everyone is celebrating about the marriage, you don't, you don't go, oh, it's time for fasting. That's the time for feasting. Jesus is the groom. Church, you are the bride. Jesus is here to wed us, Right? The days will come, he says, when Jesus is taken away. He'll be crucified. He'll be dead. There'll be days that will come where, where Jesus' disciples will, will need to fast, but those are not these days. And so the controversy is about fasting or feasting. Is it appropriate for them to be celebrating? Jesus is not doing away with fasting forever for his followers. He wants it to be understood and used rightly. Fasting is preparation. It's an expectation of God and what God is going to do. You fast when you're waiting for the groom to come. When the groom arrives, you celebrate. John's disciples fasted because that was the nature of John's ministry. He was preparing the way for the Messiah. They did so willingly. Not under compulsion, not under coercion, not because you need to do this so that you can make yourself righteous, but they did it willingly looking to the Messiah. For Jesus' disciples, Jesus is with them, right? There's no preparation, waiting, or expectation needed. See, man-made righteousness believes one of two things. Man-made righteousness will, will believe either that more suffering is better. The more suffering, the better, right? Because if you, if you, if you make yourself, cause yourself to suffer more, then you must love Jesus more. You must be more righteous, right? Or on the other side, more pleasure is better. Because pleasure has become their God. But the righteousness that comes from the Son of Man believes more Christ is better. More of Jesus is better. And friends, this frees us from man-made traditions. It frees us to rejoice in Christ by enjoying His good creations, both people and food and drink. At the same time, it does not deny, discount, or restrict us from godly duties like fasting. It doesn't say, you should be celebrating, don't ever fast, right? That would be the same thing except on the other side. Religious duties become expectation more than they become obligation. 
Sometimes the best way to get more of Christ is to participate in the celebration of all that Christ has done for us. And we do that every Sunday morning when we gather. We celebrate what Christ has done for us. It's a celebration, right? Jesus has saved us, church. His Spirit is in us. No one should celebrate or rejoice better than us. Church, no one in the world should be better at celebrating and rejoicing than Christians. I don't mean in the world's sort of out of control way that's actually worshiping pleasure and worshiping self. I mean in the right kinds of ways, the sort of grateful celebration that comes from being satisfied in Christ. We don't assume that lashing ourselves in is inherently better. But we celebrate when it's appropriate. And when it's appropriate, for us to be expecting something, to be waiting on Christ for something, to be looking to Jesus for something in our life, we fast. We fast and we pray and we seek the bread of life for that thing. Not because this, some religious duty is going to make God have to do something, but because we want Christ in that thing in our life. We want Christ in that area in our life. We want more of Christ, not more suffering or pleasure. The ultimate end is Him. So, scene four, ahead and authority, ahead and authority. Head of grain, that is. So far, we've seen that this new wine includes forgiveness. It's not based on our actions, but on faith in Christ's actions. That, that invitation is extended by God to objects of mercy that isn't based in our righteousness, but, but we're all unrighteous. In fact, it's the admission of the fact that we're unrighteous that even makes us a, 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 a candidate to be objects of mercy, right? It's about our, us being repentant or not. And when we finally taste that new wine, you realize how good it is and you rejoice in it. You want more of it. But for many of us this, who've long drunk from the old wine, this all feels a little bit squishy at this point, right? If you're like me, sometimes this kind of thing feels a little squishy to me. Now, can we just we have some rigid rules that helps me? Luke includes these two stories at the end that I think are really important, and, and they kind of revolve around the Sabbath, the most kind of venerable aspect of Jewish, the Jewish faith. It's, the, it's, a, it's, it's a Sabbath, right? This event happens on a Sabbath, and Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through a grain field, and the disciples reach out as they're walking along. You've, you've, you've done this, I'm sure you've been walking through a field, and you reach out, and you kind of touch in the grains of, of whatever is standing up there, and they reach out, and they pluck off, like, like walking through an orchard and plucking an apple off of a tree. They reach through and they pluck it off and they, they rub the grain in their hands so that the chaff goes away and they have the grain left and they, and they eat the grain. And the Pharisees see it. Now, now, first off, the Pharisees see them just traveling randomly in a field. Okay, stalker much, right? All right, they're out, they're out to get these guys. Am I right? I mean, just be aware you begin to live out the gospel of the kingdom of God and people who don't like it are going to be out to get you. They're going to be watching and waiting for you to say something, to post something that they can just jump on like ravenous wolves. So that's what happens. Now you might think, you might think, well, gosh, they should jump on them. They're stealing grain. They're stealing grain from someone's field, but they're actually not they're actually not breaking the law at all. In fact, the law provided for this sort of thing, that those who are poor or those who are traveling could do exactly this. Now, they couldn't come with a combine and, you know, harvest someone's field, right? But they could reach out and glean with their hand. They could pick up the grain that had fallen on the ground. In fact, the farmer was meant to or was commanded to leave what fell on the ground on the ground exactly for this purpose, for the poor to come by. In fact, I've heard that even in Florida, there's still a law, I think it was in Florida, there's still a law, some orange uh, orchards, 
that on, that on Sunday specifically, anyone could come and they, could, they can eat a, an orange as long as it, they're just taking it and eating it themselves, that it, that it, it was the law that was totally, totally free and permissible, encouraged even. So the issue isn't so much about taking the grain. The issue is about the fact that they were doing it on the Sabbath. And this was seen as work. The Pharisees were saying, you're working. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're, you're gleaning, you're, you're harvesting on the Sabbath. No. Ezekiel 20, it says this about the Sabbath. It says, moreover, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between me and them. This is God speaking. Between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which, if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths, they have greatly profaned. So, so I want you to understand two things. The Sabbath is pretty important. It was a sign to remind the people of God that God has set them apart, that God sanctifies them. is a very important thing. God's rules, such as the Sabbath, actually set them apart in such a way that it would lead them to life, right? Profaning the Sabbath was a big deal. Exodus 34, 21 says this, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. So it doesn't matter if it's plowing time, when you got to do a lot of work. It doesn't matter if it's harvest time, when you got a lot to harvest. It doesn't matter. You always rest on the Sabbath. That's what Exodus 34, 21 says. Now, now I'm telling you, for such an important thing, God's not giving a lot of particulars here. Don't plow, don't harvest, don't work. That's it. Not a lot of particulars. What do you mean don't plow? What exactly is harvesting? Not a lot of particulars. So people started asking, what, what, is, what does that exactly mean? And so the rabbis, over time, began to put together some rules, some, some commentary, if you will, on Exodus 34, 21, on their own. And, and even still, what Jesus' disciples are doing is it's questionable whether they're even breaking that, let alone breaking God's law. So Jesus answers with this example from 1 Samuel 21. I don't know if you know this story. David is, 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 not, quite, is not king yet. King, Saul is still king, and Saul is out to get him. And the situation comes up that, Saul, that David and his men need to get out of town fast because Saul's looking to, to, to get David again. They have to leave town so quickly that they have no provisions with them. In fact, David doesn't even have a sword. He doesn't even, he doesn't even have time to grab a sword. You know, that doesn't mean, doesn't mean much to us. Maybe you know, we don't carry our own swords all the time. But it would have been a, quite a big deal in that day, right? You don't leave home without your sword. And so they come. David and his men come to the place where the tabernacle stands, and there's a priest there, and they ask the priest if there's any bread that they can have to eat. But there's no common bread. The only bread that the priest says he has is the bread of the presence, the sanctified bread. The bread that actually sits in the holy place, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And it's replaced every Sabbath day. It's renewed, this bread is. Only sanctified bread. Remember, remember the Ezekiel passage says, I am the Lord who sanctifies. And so this holy bread, it's an ongoing reminder of God's covenant with Israel that to remind them that Yahweh is the one who sustains them, that he sustained them with manna in the wilderness and he continues to sustain them in the land, that he continues to sustain them as a people in every single sense of the word and that, and that they owe their whole life to Yahweh. So there are very particular rules about what you do with this bread of the presence. When it gets renewed at the end of the week, the priests take it and the priests eat it and they eat it in the holy place. You don't do anything other than that. No one else gets to eat it. No one else eats it anywhere else. That's where it happens, period. It's sanctified bread. Now, some have said, if you, if, if you know the story, what happens is the priest says, well, I've got some loaves of, of that bread and D David, 
being God's anointed, not yet king, but anointed to be king, says, yeah, yeah, that's good. Give, give that to me. We'll take that. And some have pointed to this and said, well, the necessity of the people is, is, is really the heart of the law, and that supersedes the letter of the law. And, but, but, but listen, if that's the case, Jesus could have used a much more straightforward example that dealt directly with the Sabbath itself. Jesus could have said, for instance, have you not read, if your oxen falls into a hole in the Sabbath, you can pull it out and save its life. You can do that. He could have easily said that and it would have been done, but he uses this illustration for some reason. He uses this story that doesn't even directly deal with laws about the Sabbath. It's not even explicitly saying that 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 event happens on the Sabbath. And while David's men and Jesus' disciples both need provision, neither of them are actually in imminent danger of death in that moment. But he uses this story, and I think think the key is in Jesus' conclusion. Jesus says in the conclusion of, of, of his story here, he says, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Who has authority? in God's house, in the house of God, verse 4. Who has authority? As the anointed king, David had authority to do what he did and to provide for his men who were with him. Jesus is saying, look, we, we read that story and we don't say David broke the law. Nowhere in, in 1 Samuel, does Samuel doesn't come and find David and say, you, you did what? No. No one condemns David for what he did. In the same way, Jesus doesn't go into the presence of God in the temple as the bread did or as David did. No, Jesus is the presence of God and is the temple. He is the king to which all other kings were shadows. How much more does he have authority to allow his disciples to pluck grain on the Sabbath and to provide for them? Here's here's the point I want to make. All of that explanation to, to, to make this point. The righteousness of man says, we make the rules. We make the rules. And then adds rule upon rule. Now you might think, well, there's lots of people in the world that seem to be throwing out all the rules. There's no rules. There's no standards. Do what you want. Live your truth, they say. It's true. They have less rules, yes, but the principle is still the same. We make the rules. But the righteousness of the Son of Man says this, follow the rule maker. No, you don't make the rules. Follow the rule maker. The goal in all of this is sanctification. Who sanctifies us? The Lord sanctifies us. The sanctification of God set apart for him. It doesn't come by following more and more rules. I want you to understand that. Sanctification, according to God, doesn't necessarily come by following more and more rules. Maybe you've never heard that from a pulpit before. I don't know. But that's the reality. The person who is most set apart isn't the person who follows the most rules. You can't be more sanctified than Jesus. Sanctification is found in Christ and in following Him. It is found first off in what He does in us to set us apart by His work and then what His Spirit is doing in us as we follow Him. That's where sanctification is found. If you think you're doing, if you think you can be more sanctified than Christ commands you, uh, what I want you to tell you is this, you are less sanctified because sanctification is in being like Christ. He's the only authority to say, do this or don't do that. And here's what's great. Even when Satan and his forces are after you, and you got to flee town with no sword, if you follow Jesus, he'll provide for you. He'll provide for you. He'll take bread from his very presence and give it to you through his Spirit. And that leads us to the last and related point, this last story that also happens on the Sabbath, a hand and a life, scene five. We're given one more story. Bear with me. I know this is like the longest sermon I've ever preached. Okay. Uh, 
we're given one more story. This time it's in a synagogue and there's a crowd of people there and the Pharisees are watching Jesus closely and there's a man with a withered hand and it specifies, interestingly, it specifies that it is his right hand that is withered. And some have drawn from this, that that's this dominant hand and so he was not able to work. I don't know, maybe that's going too far, but I think it does make an interesting point. You see, Sabbath was to give rest from work was to give us the time to contemplate God. The Sabbath is one of those places where we're supposed to see the physical and the spiritual realities of life kind of come together. Be, it's where the stitching happens between the two, right? It's not merely just, oh, I need a break. I need to take a nap. It's Sunday. Sunday afternoon, I need to take a nap. If you can take a nap this Sunday afternoon, I probably will. And that's well and good, and that's a good thing, but it's much, much more than that. We're to contemplate God on the Sabbath. It's not a revolt from work. It's a temporary stay that benefited God's worker, that restored them for the work that was ahead the next week. There's a deep truth that if Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, he will be restoring that man to work. That's what he'll be doing, right? He'll be storing his hands so that man can go and do work. And that's what the Sabbath is about. But yet, if he does that on the Sabbath, as the Pharisees see it, he'll be working. You can't do that. The technicality, right? At least in the eyes of the Pharisees. And the controversy is about whether or not this man can be healed on the Sabbath. But it's just... But to just say, well, well, this is just about being nitpicky here. The Pharisees are just being nitpicky. I think that kind of misses the point. Something can seem nitpicky to us, but to God, it's not nitpicky, right? Something can seem nitpicky to me or you, but God's going, that's not nitpicky. That's my law. That's my word. That's, that's right and good. And so, so I don't want you to miss this. This is a deeper thing. What I'm suggesting is this, that, that this goes down to the very purpose of what Sabbath is about. The purpose of why God calls us to be sanctified. Why does God call you to be sanctified? Why does God call you to be set apart? Why does he call you to be more like him? Why does he call you to be righteous? Why does he call us to, to follow him? Why does he call us to do these things? What does it produce in us? And Jesus' boldness here and his polemical nature is jarring. He pulls the man. He doesn't go off to the side and heal the man. He's done that other places, but he doesn't do that here. He pulls the man into the middle of the sanctuary, in the middle of the synagogue, where everyone can see him. He's making a point to everyone. Is it, are we to do good or to harm? Is that what the Sabbath is about? Is the Sabbath about saving a life or destroying it? Which is it about? And then it says he pauses. He pauses to look around, right? I love that. Listen, if Jesus asks a rhetorical question, do not answer. I'm just telling you, don't answer. Just keep your mouth shut and wait for him to give you the answer. In man-made righteousness, the purpose of the rules is the rules, right? The purpose of the rules is the following of them. The unfortunate side effect is that it produces tyranny. This kind of tyranny leads to death, the death of all. It's to the benefit of those who make the rules, but ultimately leads to their death as well. Sacrifice becomes the highest good rather than the sacrifice pointing to something greater. What then happens? What happens is when we're in doubt, we sacrifice. When in doubt, sacrifice. That's how you play it safe, at least publicly. Ironically, ironically here in this story, the Pharisees do more work than anyone else. Do you see this? Verse 7 they're watching Jesus closely. Verse 11, they're plotting against Jesus on the Sabbath. Who's doing more work than anyone else on the Sabbath? The Pharisees are. They're just doing it in secret. But here's where it's tricky. Some will say, well, this is why people should just be free to live how they want. This, that's liberty. Just, people can just do what they want. That's true liberty, but that's actually just lawlessness disguised. It's, it's, it's a lawlessness that leads to a disguised tyranny. It doesn't give us life. It becomes a culture of death. These so-called freedoms, for me, 
end up actually destroying your freedoms, end up actually destroying you, end up actually destroying what is ultimately good and leads to life. A.W. Pink said it this way, I think, wisely. He says, true liberty, true liberty is not the power to live as we please, but the power to live as we ought. There's a huge difference. The Son of Man's righteousness, the purpose of it is life. That's what it's about. That's what the gospel of the kingdom of God is about, bringing life. Now, one might say, but Jesus in the Bible, they have all these rules. Do this, you can't do that, etc. Listen, when you are driving through the mountains and you're coming around a curve on a mountain pass and there's a guardrail along the edge of the road, it's not meant to keep you from life. It's meant to keep you alive, right? It's meant to keep you from dying because you may not be able to quite see how big the cliff is on the other side of that guardrail. Jesus doesn't take our life to give something to himself. We are the ones that do that, right? Jesus doesn't consider equality with God even a thing to be grasped because he already is God. We are the ones who grasp at that. But the Son of Man sacrifices himself, gives up his freedom, not coercively, but willingly, to give life to others. That's the gospel of the kingdom of God. And this gives us incredible freedom to pursue that which is good. Not how we want to live, but how we ought to live. Knowing that even in the pursuit of that, even in the wild pursuit of that, risky pursuit of that, that when we make mistakes, the new wine of forgiveness is poured out to us in Christ. We are objects of mercy whom He has invited, and that causes us to rejoice again in Him and to keep on following Him. The old is not better, friends. Jesus is better. Taste and see. Let's pray.